I want to ask you a kind of little diversion. Who here can smell that vinegar? <laughs> I'm going to allude to that later on in the message. Thank you for whoever did that. <laughs> okay, let's turn to... Let's turn to Mark chapter 10. There was something Sam mentioned there in his testimony. And, um, you know, there was something he shared there that he said, you know, concerning the upbringing that he had, concerning the father that he had, the lifestyle he was around, that he no doubt had a head knowledge for God, but it had not yet sunk from the head to the heart. And so here we're going to look into a conversation or a, a, um, a, an event that took place here of a man who had some knowledge, not perfect knowledge, but some knowledge, but that knowledge really didn't sink from the head to the heart. And when Jesus came to help that knowledge to sink from the head to the heart, that man that was there uh, really didn't appreciate it. Well, let's, um, let's look tonight into this account and let's glean by God's grace a blessing from the Lord. Look with me from verse 17 in Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at this conversation or situation that took place with someone who's commonly referred to as the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. Follow with me from verse 17. He says, And when he was gone forth into the way, this is Jesus when he has gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life. This one that came running uh, in Matthew or in Luke I should say refers to him as a certain ruler and uh, in Matthew also kind of completes the question that was asked. Here we read he asks uh, good master what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life and in Matthew's account he records for us the question saying what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life. And so here is this uh, ruler, this man in position, this, this, this speaking of rank, a man of rank. Uh, here's this, um, th this man well known perhaps, being a ruler. Rulers were not just uh, a no-name person. They were, they were known. They were rulers. There's a reason why they were rulers and they were people of position. And so here's this ruler, this, this young man that came running. He came running after Jesus as Jesus began to walk away. And he didn't just run after Jesus. The Bible says, in, if you look again with me in verse 7, he says, and kneeled to him. So here's this man of reputation. Here is this ruler, and we're going to read later on, that he was a rich man with great possession coming running after Jesus. And he kneels down before him and he has this conversation to him. And so this is the setting we're at. And he refers to him as good master. Followed by that question, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? What good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? That's already the wrong question to ask. What good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? The scriptures teach us very clearly that there is none good, not even one, in reference to man. The scriptures teach us clearly, even as Paul the Apostle said it himself, he says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. The scriptures teach us clearly and for those that understand that, that anything that I deemed good, anything that I would perhaps class as righteousness, I'm not doing a bad thing, I'm doing a good thing, understand that the scripture says that righteousness that we think is a good thing 
is deemed as a filthy rag in the sight of God, it counts for nothing. It's not something that's appealing to the Lord. It's not something that would cause God to have favor upon anyone, especially in helping them come to the place of inheriting eternal life. No good thing can be done by man that we could ever inherit eternal life. A similar question was asked in John chapter 6. It appears to be by a crowd, whether it was by many or by one, we're not sure. But they asked a similar question saying, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus says to them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. Anyone that was trying to earn some sort of favor with God was pointed to Jesus Christ. You've got to go to Him. You've got to believe on Him. You've got to trust Him. The Scriptures tell us that in Jesus Christ, therein we find the righteousness of God. And in Romans chapter 10, it talks about a religious crowd that were going about to establish their own righteousness, their own good works, as it were, that they perhaps may inherit eternal life. But it says against those saying they did not submit themselves or were ignorant of the righteousness of God and did not submit themselves to it. But here we have a rich man coming, asking this question, What good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Do you have a mindset like that tonight? you have a mindset that is perhaps hoping, trusting, or, or pursuing a path of some sort of good deed or good works or good effort or something good that we may deem good, that God in your own understanding would say, good on you, mate. That's how I was. I thought when I went to, um, you know, the, the, the church building there, the, the Catholic church, I was raised as a Catholic, I thought, man, God is so happy with me. I would never used to say that. But that's what I actually believe. God is so happy with me. And you know when I actually believed that God was like super happy with me? When I went on another day, not on Sunday. And I thought, mate, because I, I... And look behind that heart, and I'll testify. I'm not saying that made me right with God. But behind that heart, and I'll testify to you now, was a measure of sincerity because I did have a desire for God. I did want to know God. Not in a lifetime would I reject God in my mind and understanding, even though by my lifestyle and works I did and rebelled against Him. There was something there where I did want to know God. But this mindset of good works, this mindset of you need to do something to be right with God or, or you need to attain some sort of measure of good works to outweigh your bad was false thinking. And that was my thinking. That was my thinking. Not for a moment did I ever think I was good in the sight of God, even though I was pursuing the path of building up my good so I can be right in the sight of God. A little did I know it was not by good works. Little did I know that it was nothing good in me and nothing good that I can do in and of myself, whereby I may inherit eternal life. That was absolutely foreign to me. And when I heard that for the very first time, it frustrated me. I never heard anything like it. This went absolutely contrary to everything I was taught and believed. Everything I was, not everything I should say, but somewhat a measure of my pursuit in outweighing or, or, or trying to do some sort of good because I did feel good after doing good and I did think that God was happy with me doing good but there was something that followed not far behind that and overpowered it every time and it was my guilty conscience. And I knew why that was there. Doesn't matter how much good I tried, doesn't matter how much good I pursued, doesn't matter how much I tried to reform my own life, this guilt would follow after me and absolutely torment me. But here is this man running after Jesus, kneeling down before him, good master, good master. Some may say it's a sweet way to address Jesus. But it was an interesting answer in verse 18 that Jesus gave to this man. He says, why callest thou me good? Why are you calling me good? He says, there is none good but one, that is God. 
There is none good but one that is good. Speaking to the man, why are you calling me good? There is none good but one that is God. I'm going to read a little commentary here for you that kind of summarizes uh, many and I believe hits at home. Uh, the scripture here gives us the impression that he, the rich young ruler, was trying to flatter the Lord. For the Jewish rabbis did not allow the word good to be applied to them. Only God was good. And the word must be reserved for him alone. Jesus was not denying that he was God. Rather, he was affirming it. In speaking to this man, saying, Why are you calling me good? Is because he, in some fashion, has a mindset like that. That one day, we could be good. He was a good rabbi. Jesus, up until this point, had done many wonderful works, no doubt about it. Miracles, uh, healings, the, 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 his preaching and teaching. And so he addresses him as good master. But Jesus cuts down this... This, this mindset cuts down this flattery and he continues to address him. And he says in verse 19, he says, Thou knowest the commandments. So he's speaking to this man, he says, You know the commandments. He asks the question, What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, or we may understand this as being covetousness. Honour thy father and mother elsewhere, it says, because this is a commandment with promise. And so he's reiterating several of the commandments to this one that, as we're going to see, believed in verse 20. He says, I have observed, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. He believed he kept them. He believed he met the standard. He did not reject the commandments. As a matter of fact, he says, I have kept these. I've kept these. You know, in a parallel passage in this scripture, Jesus says to the, this man in, 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 in the same answers, 18, why callest thou me good? There's none good but one. And goes on to say, but if thou wilt enter into life, Keep the commandments. And so you've probably heard it said before, and I might say something that may shock some, but let me finish. There's two ways to get into heaven. There are two ways to inherit eternal life. There are two ways to have eternal life. One way, Jesus said it right here, keep the commandments. Who he can stand today with all assurance testifying, I've kept the commandments perfectly. Anyone here? There goes that option. There goes this option. But here you have a man that's persuaded, I have kept these from my youth up. And if you read the Gospels, and I'm not going to get into it, but Jesus brings out the heart behind the commandments, saying things like, if you have looked on a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. Concerning not killing, he says, if you have hate in your heart toward a brother, you've already murdered. And so Jesus bringing out the heart of the commandments. And as we heard this morning over at our uh, place, that the commandments of God were given to us to tell us of the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the righteousness of God. And what the commandments do to us is they expose us as showing us as being not good not holy, not righteous. And what a weight of guilt is heaped upon us when we consider James. He says, if you offend in one point, you've offended in all points. When the commandments are given, it's not necessarily given to say, elevate this one above the other. They're given as the law. And if you've broken one, you've broken the law altogether. Who can get into it? Who can have eternal life by the first way? By keeping of the commandments. Not one of us. There is none that doeth good. There is none righteous. No, not one. And so that option is out the door. We cannot obtain eternal life by keeping of the commandments. We cannot obtain eternal life 
by anything we can do in and of ourselves. I'm going to touch more on that later on, especially concerning the only way that has been offered to man. Now I say the only way, although Jesus said this, that if you keep the commandments you can have eternal life, he wasn't saying that this is necessarily possible. He's asking this to help him to understand you haven't, even enlisting some. And when you and I compare ourselves not to one another but to the commandments of God, we are absolutely undone before the standard of God. And we have a foresight now when I see the law that I'm going to be judged by that I am going to be deemed guilty again and over again and over again and over again. Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. No hope by the law. The law condemns us. The law shows us our sin for what it is. And when we see it, any false hope or assurance we give ourselves or grab from others is absolutely crumbled when we compare to the right standard that shows us we have no hope by the law of God. There has never been a commandment given whereby we can have life. If there was a commandment given that we could keep to have life, then, all right, righteousness will come by the law. We'd be made right with God by the law. But there never was and there never will be. But Jesus came into the world not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And therein lies the righteousness of God in the one who kept the law perfectly and offers salvation to all. I'm going to touch more on that later on. Then in verse 21 is what I want to focus on. He says in verse 21 to this man here, he says, Then Jesus beholding him. Look at these next two words. Look there with me in verse 21. Then Jesus beholding him. Look at these next two words. Same with me. Loved him. Loved him. Jesus wasn't picking on him. Jesus wasn't trying to make a spectacle of this man. Jesus was not trying to belittle him in any way. Jesus beholding him, gazing upon him, looking directly at him. And the scripture tells us, loved him. Loved him. And that said something that would cause probably some of us to fall off our chairs. It tells us that the disciples and those around were in great astonishment when he said these things. He said, one thing thou lackest. He didn't go there and explain to him how you haven't kept the commandments. Jesus knew he hadn't kept the commandments. But what he wanted to bring out in this man, how you lack one thing. And exposing his heart, he says this. He says, Go thy way. Sell whatsoever thou hast. Think about these words. And give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Now look at this. And come. Take up the cross. And follow me. Now what kind of an exchange is that? He, Jesus, is looking upon this man kneeling down before him and loved him. That said before those around and, in, and, and to Jesus Christ that I've observed these things from my youth up. Okay, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. I'll give you riches in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. What an invitation did Jesus give for this man to come and trust him as his saviour. What would you think if you walked past me and sharing the gospel that the scripture clearly states, the gospel is speaking about what Jesus did for mankind. 
where even Paul refers to it very explicitly, very specifically, he's saying that how Jesus Christ died on that cross for our sins. And he was buried just like the scripture says. And on the third day, exactly like the scripture said, he rose again. Conquering sin, conquering death. This is the good news. This is the gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and that you can be saved by Jesus Christ. You just got to come to Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the simplicity. This is the good news. What would you think of me if you walked past me having a conversation with a man saying, my friend, you need to sell all that you have and you need to go and give it to the poor and God will give you riches in heaven and you need to come to Jesus, take up your cross and follow him. What would you think of me? What gospel am I preaching? You know why Jesus said these words? I'll tell you why. Look on with me in verse 22. Look at the response to this man. He says, and he was sad at that saying. He was sad at that saying. And went away grieved. Grieved in his heart. Have you ever grieved before? It's not a pleasant thing, is it? It's not a happy emotion if you want to look at it that way. It's, it's not something that's, that's nice. He went away grieved. He was sad for he had great possessions. You know what Jesus just did? Touched on the idol that he had set up before God. He touched on the very thing that this man loved more than God. Elsewhere he, he says he had great possessions. Elsewhere he says he was very sorrowful for he was very rich. You know when we think someone's rich and we refer to someone as they're being rich, we think they got a lot of money. Here the scriptures telling us, hey, he wasn't just rich, he was very rich. Very rich. And here Jesus touches on his riches and invites him to come and follow him. And then look at the lesson he uses to teach everyone, including that rich man. Because he went away sorrowful. Look in verse 23. And Jesus looked around about. From there he turned to everyone else, not just that rich man, and said unto his disciples, those that were following him, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words, verse 24. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, children, how hard is it, now look at this, for them that trust in riches. To enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Here the Lord exposes the heart of the man. Hence why the invitation was given so specific. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. I'll give you riches in heaven. Come. Take up the cross. Follow me. This man that came with an outward display of a form of humility. He was a man of reputation. He was a very rich man. He wasn't just a nobody in the eyes of the people. He was a man of prominence. He was a man, again, the Bible calls him a ruler. He, the, man, uh, the Bible says he had great possessions. He, had, he was very, very rich. And here's this man of this caliber kneeling before Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Think, mate, what a humble man. As rich as he is, what, uh, what a place and position he has and he's kneeling before Jesus. Wow, what a humble man. I've kept these things from my youth up. Wow, what a holy man. What a godly man. You know what Jesus just did? Turn that man inside out and says, let's look at your heart right now.
and how often it is for those that would show some sort of outward display of a form of righteousness or godliness or morality and the reason why they would present these things before the eyes of men and even convince themselves that they're right in the eyes of God is because there's something there in the heart that they want to latch onto, that they want to hold onto, that they really want and they won't let it go for anything and this outward display in their minds and in the eyes of everyone veils what the heart really wants. He loved his money. He wanted riches. He trusted in it. You and I know what money can do in this world. The saying goes in the world, you got money, you got power, right? What people would do for the right price. That's why this says, the Bible says it's the love of money. Not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. What a manner of wickedness we have read of or heard of or perhaps even seen some of us here because people had gone so far that may cause some of us to say, how can someone go so far? But you know, oftentimes if you trace it back, what was behind it? That. That right there. And this man had it all together. He had his religion. He was right. He had his reputation. All good. And he also had his riches. He was safe. He can get whatever he wants, when he wants. And so you know what Jesus was calling him to? A life of faith. A life of faith. I can almost see him looking at him with love in his heart for him. Jesus wasn't there saying, beholding him the Bible says looking at him gazing upon him loved him and gave that answer my friend this is the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ when he invites people to follow him and trust on him his invitation can seem so radical and we ought not to undermine it at times because Jesus knows how to expose the heart of man Jesus knows how to bring out what the very thing is you're holding on to that's stopping you from trusting Him as your Saviour. The very thing that you're setting before Him, the very thing that, that, that's holding you back from giving your all to Jesus and coming after Him and taking up the cross and following Him. Jesus knows what it is. What is it for you? For this man, it was his riches. He was trusting in it. And he wanted his riches. He didn't want to give it away for anyone. Not even for eternal life. Not even for eternal life. How sad that is. The Bible elsewhere in Luke chapter 16 talks about a rich man. How about we go there? In Luke chapter 16, a very sobering passage. <clears throat> Who he can still smell the vinegar. Not as strong anymore, right? Okay. Luke chapter 16. Here we come to a passage from verse 19. And it refers to two people here. There's others mentioned in it. He says, and there was a certain, who? In verse 19, there was a certain rich man. And he goes on to describe he had it all. He had it all. He was a rich man. And then it goes on and describe a, a beggar in verse 20 named Lazarus, a poor man, a beggar. And mate, did he have a hard lot in life. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs and, and, and had not much. But something happened to the rich man that happened to the beggar as well. And you know what that was? Death. Death. Death came to the rich man. Just like death came to the poor man. Ecclesiastes talk about this. He even says about the wise and the foolish. He says wisdom is far greater than, than foolishness. But I've seen the wise and the foolish die the same way. And here he's talking about a rich man. And here he's talking about a beggar. Both die. He says, and it came to pass in verse 22 that a beggar died and was carried by the angels in Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and now look at verse 23. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. 
And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, my friend, too late for mercy. He says that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. He, this rich man, has ended up in hell and he can see uh, Lazarus in the place of comfort referred to as Abraham's bosom and there's a way of communication here although there's this, he's in hell, there's a way of communication but there's a great gulf fixed between, there's a great void where no one can cross over, this passage continues to say and here the rich man is calling that Lazarus would come and just the tip of his finger put it on his tongue to cool it. Just the tip. He lifted up his eyes. He could see. Being in torment, he could feel. Seeing Abraham afar off, he's, he's having a conversation with him. He can speak. Have mercy on me. There's still something there that, that, that he wants to be delivered from. He can thirst, dip his finger, cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame, absolute agony in the fires of hell. My friend, if you think hell is just a figment of your imagination, you've got another thing coming. Oh, how the world and false religions seem to undo and undermine the reality of hell. This is partly why Jesus came and suffered and died on that cross for our sins so we don't suffer and die in our sins and go to hell. My friend, God wants you to go to heaven. doesn't want you to go to hell. But this rich man ended up in hell. He had a beggar there, just begged for the crumbs of his table. It was a bother to him. And look at the end of his life. Tormented. Verse 26, there's a great gulf fixed between. No one's going to cross paths. You know, there's no exits in hell, my friend. Once you're there, you're there forever. And you know what he wanted, this, what he wanted Abraham to do? Send Lazarus to go tell my brothers, lest they also come to this place of torment. Verse 28, it was too late for the rich man to be concerned about eternal things. Here he is in eternal flames, in torment, because it appears that he loved his riches more than God. And now he's got a concern for souls, but it's too late. Too late. You can't reach your brothers, my friend. It's too late, you're in hell. You can't have a drop of water, as, one, as, as another man said, never mind that precious wine you drink. You're in hell. It's too late. There's no more rest. There's no more hope. And you know what? One of the most tormenting things I believe there is in hell look at verse 25 with me. He says, But Abraham said, Son, and that word son simply indicates that this man may have been of some sort of Jewish descent. And if you know anything about Jews or Israel, it was understood that they had the true God, the true and living God, and they were given the commandments of God. God had visited them, salvation was open to the Jews, and the indication is that he was perhaps of Jewish descent, but nevertheless, regardless who he was, he, Abraham said, son, look at this next word. What's that word there? Remember. Remember. What do you mean? In hell? We're going to be able to remember? In hell, we're going to be able to recall things of this life? In hell, my friend, you will have a memory there that you're going to look back on for all eternity. It's not going to be erased. It's not going to cease to exist. There are things there that are being embedded in your mind right now tonight. This preacher's face, this voice you're hearing, this invitation to turn from sin and come to Jesus is being embedded in your mind here tonight. And if you don't come to Jesus and one day end up in hell, my friend, you will remember where there was a man yelling from a pulpit saying, come to Jesus, that you may escape the wrath to come. Come to Jesus that you may obtain mercy for there's no mercy in hell. Come and find rest for your souls. 
Come and drink of the water of life as the invitation Jesus gives freely. And you'll never thirst again, but in hell you'll thirst forevermore. My friend, these things that are being offered to you in this world, those things or that thing that is stopping you from coming to Jesus, is the very thing to use the words of Jesus that you're giving in exchange for your soul. That's what's stopping you. What is it? It's not that you haven't heard it before. Perhaps if it has been that you haven't heard it before. Perhaps tonight's the very first night that you hear that Jesus loves you. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. My friend, you can imagine and picture the gaze of Jesus beholding that rich young ruler, beholding Him. He loved Him. And let me say in like manner, God looking down from heaven, gazing upon you, loves you. Loves you. Died for you. So that you could be saved from your sin. So that you could be saved from yourself. And so that you could be forgiven and have mercy and life eternal. That that thirst would be quenched. That purpose that you're trying to find in this life that you're trying to find it in a husband or a wife or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or in a career or in a hobby or something or whatever. Perhaps you think it's children that's going to satisfy. Perhaps you think it's a house that's going to satisfy or a car that's, satis that's going to satisfy or that position in my job that's going to satisfy. My friend, nothing can satisfy the longing of your soul but Jesus Christ. Amen. This is why He came. God is not saying here, I can't wait to send you to hell. The Bible says He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Appealing to His memory. Remember. Remember. Look with me in verse 30. This is following after His pleading that, that, that Abraham would send Lazarus to tell his brothers lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, no, uh, no they have Moses on, and the prophets. This is in reference to the scriptures. Now look with me in verse 30. He says, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, look at these words, they will repent. How does the rich man know they will repent? Rich man, how do you know about repentance? You know why, my friend? The rich man knew he needed to repent. But he did not repent. And here he is from hell trying to plead that someone would rise from the dead and plead with his brothers to repent. For he did not repent and now is in hell forevermore. Oh, what people in hell would give just to be on earth for one more night in a meeting like this to hear the invitation to repent from your sin and trust Jesus to save you from it, what they would give. But it's too late. It's too late. When you breathe your last breath, my friend, it's too late. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this is the judgment, it's too late. No hope in hell. One of the most crushing things I believe that will happen. The Bible tells us that those that are in hell are going to be resurrected one day only to be cast into a place called the lake of fire. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. At the end of your Bibles there. And I want us to notice there's a certain people here. You remember that vinegar? In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 7 talks about those that have overcome shall inherit all things. And he says, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. And the scripture clearly teaches us that we are overcomers in Christ Jesus. It's because of him. But notice verse 8 it says, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers 
and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death. The Bible tells us this place is burning forever and ever. What a crushing thing to be raised from hell as it were only to face that final condemnation and be cast into the eternal lake of fire. Fire and brimstone. It says here concerning fire and brimstone, brimstone is sulfur. Who here has ever smelt sulfur burning? Anyone ever smelt sulfur burning? What did it do to you? Did it make you sit there going, oh mate, if you've not smelt sulfur burning, let me give you a foresight of hell, my friend. Do what you can to get a little ball, just a tiny ball of sulfur. Light it on fire there. And wait till those fumes come up and go, that you may get just but a glimpse. I say, not even a glimpse of what's going to be taking place in hell. That vinegar spilt and instantly there was an aroma that filled this room, that filled our nostrils, that we went, oh. True? Oh, what brimstone does. A friend of mine with all excitement had a, had a bunch of brimstone, had a bunch of sulfur that he collected from, uh, from the ruins and remains of Sodom and Gomorrah there in Israel when we were there. And he comes and he said, have you ever smelt brimstone? Have you ever smelt sulfur burning? He goes, here it is. And there was a big chunk here and I, I wanted to get that one and burn that. He goes, no, 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 no. And he grabbed one about that big and he brought it out. And he started to burn it, and he goes, when it burns, smell it. And uh, he didn't want the kids around it, and you know when he lit it, you know what he did? He walked as far away as he could from it. That's what he did. And then we went there, and I thought, well, what's going on? And I smelt it, and there was something inside here that closed up. And there was something that just literally shut within me that made me say, oh! And that smell was stuck and this disgust was there from this, this little thing like that. My friend, hell is forever filled with fire and brimstone. If the torments of the flame is not enough, there is an aroma that is filling hell of brimstone burning forevermore that's going to flood your nostrils, causing your insides to feel like you want to close up and suffocate. The torments of hell cannot be described, cannot be explained. My attempts to do it tonight doesn't do it justice. I'm trying to help you to understand. Just like that vinegar filled the room and the aroma still lingers. Now we see the smell is not so strong, but in hell it's forever. It's not going to ease off. The torments will not get better. You won't get used to it. My friend, I'm not trying to scare you out of hell, but there have been some, no doubt, that have heard of the fires of hell and, and perhaps in their hearts said, I never knew it. I never heard of it before. What I saw on Hollywood was an absolute mockery and a distortion of what hell was. They make it out like Jesus and the devil are buddies and have a joke from time to time. They make it out like people in hell just having a bit of a party and having a good time. How many times, I don't know if you've heard it, maybe you've even said it one time in your life. I don't know how many times I've heard it out there on the streets when we say to people, my friend, if you die tonight, where would you spend eternity? <laughs> I'm going to hell with my mates, mate. I'm going to have a good time down there. You don't know what hell is, my friend. Don't believe the lie of Hollywood. It's an absolute lie. It's distortion. We say, mate, we know it's a movie, but you're being educated by it. You're believing it without even realizing it. God doesn't want you to go to hell. He doesn't want you to go to hell so much that he came all the way from heaven for you. That's how much he doesn't want you to go to hell. He left heaven's glories humbled himself, became as a fashion as a man, and he humbled himself so far even to the death of the cross. The cross wasn't an honorable death, it was the most shameful death someone could die because there they hung, being displayed for crimes, for all to see, and dying one of the most cruel deaths. But Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him he took it for us he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him the just for the unjust 
Jesus came and took your account and wants you to have his. That you would not only have the hope of eternal life now, but rejoice in it forevermore when the day comes. Oh, how we long to see Jesus. This is why we sing the way we sing. Because we want to be with him forevermore. He's put in our hearts the songs of Zion. And we praise him till we see him where our praise will continue forever and ever. Forever and ever. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. There is no good thing we can do to inherit eternal life. The disciples were so shocked by Jesus' answer to this rich young ruler. And they were astonished, the Bible says. And, and they asked the question to him, who then can be saved? And he says, with man it is impossible. In other words, there is nothing man can do. No good thing man can do to be saved. But with God, all things are possible. Amen. Because it is he that hung on that cross for you. It is he that conquered death and hell on that cross for you. And he testified and showed it when he rose from the dead. Showing that death has no power over him. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Not over Jesus. And not over those that have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Not over those that have come to Jesus and been born again. Death has no sting. Grave has no victory. As Charlie said, it's simply a promotion to glory. This is why Paul says stuff like, I have a desire to depart and be with God. I don't want to leave this earth because of poor me, poor me, poor me. No, I just can't wait to be with God. It says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What a sure hope you can have tonight, my friend. What a purpose of life you can receive this evening if you would come and take Jesus as your Saviour. He came not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He didn't come to condemn the world because the world's already condemned. He came that everyone might have hope. He came and brought so people can have life and life more abundant. What are you trusting in? What's stopping you from coming to Jesus? For him it was his riches. What is it for you? What's stopping you? What's stopping you? You know, there's not going to be anyone there standing with you on judgment day. I'll never forget witnessing to a man sharing Christ with him. And he, uh, and he was with a group of friends. And, uh, and, and he was, I, was, I was trying to compel him about how God loves him and wants him to be saved from his sin, that the world offers nothing but corruption and defilement and wants to destroy you and leave you, leave, leave you for dead. Offers you so many promises and never delivers. Makes you look like mate, these things on Hollywood. You can have a good life and, and be all sweet, but you try and get it and it's never there. You're filled with gravel. You're filled with guilt. And he's there mocking and scoffing. And, and there, and he was with a group of friends. And, and, and as he was there and making a joke and, and standing out, he's kind of standing out in front of all his friends and, and just kind of making light of the whole thing and, and, and kind of jesting. And without him even knowing, and I didn't really pay any attention to this, but his friends walked off. I can't remember what for. And he's still going there with me. And he's just mocking and jesting. And, <laughs> and then he looked for his friends for comfort and support. I'll never forget how his face actually dropped. And his countenance changed. He actually lost his strength. All this, this, this display was put on with his mates because the company that he had... You know, before this preacher on the corner trying to plead with someone to come with Jesus, I can't explain to you how his countenance changed. And you know what I said instantly to that man? I said, my friend, that's how it's going to be for you on the day of judgment. You're going to stand before the judge of all the earth and you're going to offer whatever you think you're going to offer and you're going to accuse however you want to accuse and you're going to speak your mind if you think, but my friend, there's not going to be anyone standing with you on the day of judgment. 
You're going to be all alone. You can't look to your friends for support. You can't look to your wife or your husband or your mother or your father or brother or your sister for a tap on the shoulder standing there with you. You're going to be all alone before the judge of all the earth. Before those eyes of fire that are going to expose everything we've ever done. But you know what the good news is? You can come clean right now before you get there. You know what God wants for you? He wants you to settle out of court. He doesn't want you to hit that courtroom and stand for that judgment because my friend, you will be condemned in your sin. You stand condemned now. As a matter of fact, it says for those that will not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God abideth on you. It's there already on you. You're only a heartbeat away from reaping what you have sown. But Jesus is not offering you hell for all eternity, my friend. He's offering you hope, a hope of heaven, a hope of forgiveness, a hope of a clean slate. You can have new life in Christ. And that's the part that got me. When a friend of mine told me, there's nothing you could do to take away from what Jesus did on the cross. The only thing you can do is receive him. It's new life in Christ. That's the part that melted me. That's the part when I heard the gospel and I saw the grace of God in these people that were sharing the gospel with me. And I wasn't arguing that, oh, Jesus is this and Jesus is that. You know what got me? I have no issue that Jesus died for the sins of the world. I have no issue that Jesus can save sinners. But with all genuineness, you know what was getting me? Would he save someone like me? My friend, you've got no idea what I've done. I'll never speak of it ever again. Still till now, I'm ashamed of it. And I was thinking before God, would he save someone like me? I remember coming before him that night saying, you know my deepest, darkest secrets. You know the very things that no one knows. You even know the very sins I've committed that I've forgotten. As the first time I was open and honest to God about my sin, I wasn't hiding it anymore. I wasn't justifying it. I was confessing it before him. He already knew it. And I said, Lord, if this is life, if this is it, there's no point. What is it? It's like a dog chasing its tail. There's no point. There's no hope. There's no end. No purpose. I said, if this is life, there's no point. I said, but I know what Jesus did for me. And I know he died on the cross for my sins. I remember saying these words to the Lord. I said, Lord, if you will send Jesus to be my Lord, be my Savior, I want to live for you. And I'll tell you the heart behind those words, if you will. You know what that heart was? Would you really save someone like me, Lord? My friends, did he save me? Oh, glory to God, did he save me? I can't explain to you the joy that flooded my soul that night that I had never experienced before, the peace that, that, that flooded my soul that I had never had before. And there was something now living in me that I had never had before that was letting me know I'm on a new journey, I'm a new creature. God has heard and God has answered. And the two instant desires that I had was to get into this book, this book excuse me, but the first one was I've got to tell everyone about this. It was 10.30 at night, so the first people I thought of was my family. I went and woke them up from their sleep and started telling them about what God had just done for me that night, how God can save them. It's God that's missing from our life. My friend, I thought it was just a, a geographical location that I needed that would help my life. I thought it was a, a girlfriend or a wife. I even thought it was children. When I have children, I'll be all good. Or when I finally have my setup, when I have money in the account, when I have a car, when I have a house paid off and made, this is what life's about. But my friend, on that journey in pursuit after those things, nothing satisfied. They never satisfied. They never took away the guilt. But in a moment, I say in a moment, Jesus did. And this is the invitation he offers to all men. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What are the works of God that you need to work, my friend? The fingers pointed to Jesus Christ. Go to him. Go to the way, the truth and the life. 
For no man can come to the Father but by Him. No man can have forgiveness of sins but by Him. No one can be made right with God but by Him. No one can have peace with God except through Jesus Christ our Lord. And He offers it to you tonight. Would you come to Him? Would you be saved? Would you be born again? What is it that's stopping you? What is it that you're giving in exchange for your soul? My friend, you have the blessing of foresight. You have received now the blessing of foreknowledge. Count the cost wisely. Jesus loves you. And let me let you in on a little secret. The devil hates you. And the devil is not going to be ruling in hell. The devil is going to be burning in hell. For hell was created for him and his angels. He is not going to be some sort of high figure there in hell. He's going to be in absolute torments. Because he hates God. And he hates his creation. And he's trying to take as many as he can with him. Don't fall for the lies. Don't try to convince yourself that you have more time, my friend. If you hear his voice, if you hear the invitation, if you hear the gospel, harden not your heart, as one brother said, God, give me grace to speak words of life into your soul. Hear these words and hearken to the Lord. Come to him and be saved. If you're trusting anything except him, my friend, it's a false hope. If you're trusting in a prayer you prayed, my friend, you're trusting in a false hope. If you're trusting in the sincerity of your prayer, my friend, it's a false hope you are trusting in. It's not in my prayer. It's not, it's, it's not in the sincerity. It's in Christ. It's in Jesus. We are pointed to Christ. How glorious it is as I speak these words. Your heart can cry out to the Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Would you cry out to the Lord this evening? If you're here with us, you've not made that decision. There's something there. There's a person. There's a thing. There's an excuse. There's a justification. Whatever it is that you're giving in exchange. You know what it is for most people, especially the younger generation? It's the world out there. And all its lights flashing. And all this thing that's crying out, you can be free. You can be, have a good time. You can have your own life and do whatever you want. The system of this world is promising you freedom, but my friend, you're only going to end up in bondage. The, 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 this world is, is, is promising you so much satisfaction, but you're going to end up with emptiness. You know what Jesus wants to do? He wants to heal you. He wants to save you. But the invitation is if you're going to come, you come, you take up the cross, and you follow Him. And only then, Jesus said to those Jews that believed on Him, He says, if you continue in My Word, then are you my disciples indeed? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know how you can tell those true disciples from the professing ones? Who's doing the word of God? Who is the one that loves this book and is seeking to live it with all their heart? Who is the one that you can see has forsaken all, as it were, taken up their cross to follow Christ? What great comfort in the end of our passage in Mark chapter 10. Because Peter began to say to him, verse 28, he says, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions. 
and in the world to come, eternal life. Glory to God for eternal life. You know what Moses said? He knew what the pleasure of this world had to offer. And the scriptures testify of us that the pleasures of sin is true. It's there. It says about Moses that he was choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. But that season will be over and you will end up in either heaven or hell, my friend. The question isn't offered to you of where do you want to spend eternity? I want to go to heaven, I don't want to go to hell. The question is, what will you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with this crucified Christ that's risen from the dead, that is one day coming to judge the world in righteousness? You can make peace with Him now, for in that day, no more hope, no more peace, no more mercy. Would you come to Him? Can you see Him gazing upon you now? Can you see Him say, I love you? I died for you? As we sing the vilest offender, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. That can be your testimony this evening, if only you'd come to Jesus.